0: Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay
1: FM, brought to you this week by ExpressVPN. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co host, Jason Snell.
0: Hello, Stephen. Welcome back to Liftoff.
1: Yes, another fortnight has gone by. Mm-hmm. We're back to yes. talk about things that have happened. So many things going on. Mm hmm. It's kind of ridiculous. I was just scrolling through this. Uh, we don't even have the Falcon Heavy launch in here, but it went well. And then the center core tipped over on the barge. And-
0: yeah, I guess that, that can be pre-flight checklist uh, zero. number zero,
1: which is there was a
0: there was a second Falcon Heavy launch. I can do this even though it's not in the notes. There was a second ha- Falcon Heavy launch. It was a uh, communications satellite that is in a geosynchronous o- orbit uh, over the like Middle East and Europe. And it's uh, it's a high orbit, so they needed the extra launch capacity of Falcon Heavy. We got to see those two first-stage boosters come back to Cape Canaveral um, and land and almost simultaneously at their two different pads, which is amazing and like something out of science fiction. Mm-hmm. And they landed this time on the drone ship where they missed the last time, and it did a hard landing into the... Atlantic Ocean. It landed on the drone ship, but the seas were so high that as they were trying to secure it to the drone ship so that they could take it back, it tipped over and I guess like fell in the water. And then they had to tow it back, and it's kind of kind of dented, but uh, but it's still like they they landed it right. It's just that the it was so rough in the water that it didn't stay upright.
1: I guess that's part of the part of the downside of landing on a barge, but. You know, still. Yeah. I mean, you they'll, landed they'll, on the barge. They'll figure so. it out. <laughs> yeah, the damage that was done was you know
0: tipping damage as opposed to smash into the water mm-hmm. damage. So that's good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I agree with you. The, the the two side boosters landing, you know, side by side, just a heartbeat apart. That hasn't gotten old. Two launches in, still, still loving that view. It's pretty good. It's a good show, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was out running errands during the launch, and I had set a alarm to remind me that it was started. I was hoping I'd be home, but I wasn't. So I definitely just pulled into a parking lot and watched it like the YouTube stream on my phone in my truck. Uh, just <laughs> in a, I think I was in a Walgreens parking lot. It was <laughs> quite the adventure. They don't launch them very often. You gotta you gotta see it. You know, gotta make it. Okay, so we did number zero. Number one is some spacesuit follow up. So we mentioned. Couple of episodes ago, all the things that would be necessary for this new, or really any, <laughs> faster timeline or not, uh, you need updated spacesuits for a new lunar program and definitely for a uh, a program to go to Mars. The spacesuits,
0: yeah. At- are- and the ISS mm-hmm. is running out of spacesuits because they're these old spacesuits, which is why we didn't get the all-female yes. spacewalk, because they have a limited supply and they were not all set up properly.
1: Yeah, what they do have is not very flexible in terms of configuration, right? If they had had another one ready or or they were more adjustable, it could be one thing, but they end up in the situation where they didn't have what they needed. Uh, So we spoke about that a few weeks ago, and we got an email from a listener who uh, I can just say is in the know when it comes to these sorts of things. Uh, It was asked to be anonymous. That while there hasn't been much said about it, NASA is working on next-generation spacesuits. So we've seen SpaceX and Boeing are doing this for their commercial crew programs. They have some flight suit type stuff, but this is like – open the hatch and go outside level of spacesuit being worked on by NASA. Uh, There's some links in the show notes to the international conference on environmental systems. I tried reading some documents on that website and was in over my head, but it's there if you want it. But the, uh, I think the headline here is that the NASA is working on next generation suits. This was actually part of the constellation program, which remember was proposed by the Bush administration and then later killed by the Obama administration. It, uh just see if this sounds familiar would have returned to the moon by 2020 with an eventual trip to Mars atop new American built rockets that's weird it's a, i don't never mm. heard of that quite a sequence of events before uh i really mm, i really want to talk about the constellation program i thought we had but i couldn't find anything in the archive so i, I want to uh i want to dive into that to a future episode cuz i think it's really interesting but all that to say new spacesuits were part of that program. And what's going on now is basically an extension of the work that began way back in the mid-2000s. Of course, funding has been up and down over the years. It's not a very, um, I guess, exciting part of the space program, but a really important one. And and it does seem like important progress uh, is being made. You can look through the papers at that website, and you can see what the research has been going on in NASA and with its partners. And the current plan seems to be testing components of a new suit with components from the current uh extravehicular mobility unit the emu sometime around 2024 so i don't know this email comes from before the uh the pence announcement so i don't i would assume that this also has to be sped up now but we should be seeing some testing of these new components in the next few years especially if you're going to use this suit to go to the, the surface of the moon we got to see it at some point before then
0: yeah, but it's good. It's good to know that you know. It, it's frustrating that this is still kind of churning in the back room, but it's good to know that there is something going on here, and it's not like there's nothing being done. That this has been a uh, a a project that's moving ahead because you got to have new spacesuits. That's bottom line is that the the existing ISS spacesuits are uh, really old.
1: Yeah, they they are a relic of a past program, and it is. It's clear to me, too, if you talk about the surface of the moon, but especially the surface of Mars, those environments are very different than low Earth orbit. And you need different types of materials that can withstand different types of environments. You know, talk about the dust on the moon and Mars is very abrasive. Clearly, you don't have right. that sort of danger in low Earth orbit. But in low Earth orbit, you have uh, – you, know, you could be struck by small pieces of debris, so you have protection for that. It's a different set of needs – and I think that it's clear that NASA and others are working on this. And uh, I was excited to see get this email and have some more detail on that because they haven't talked a lot about it publicly. And uh, I would imagine we will hear more about this as the what I've now dubbed the Pence clock continues to tick forward.
0: Mm, the Pence nice. clock. Pence clock. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh,
1: number two, it's uh,
0: Titan. You like Titan, right? Oh, yeah. One of us definitely Big drafted moon. it. I don't... I Big don't, Moon I don't Saturn. Know who drafted yeah, it. it's a, how could you how could you not draft it? I mean, <laughs> it's Titan. It's it's huge. It's a, a huge moon around Saturn. It is one of the uh, it, what is the only moon with an atmosphere, and it is uh, one of the only places uh, other than I think it's the only other place in the solar system other than Earth where there is a liquid on the surface. Is the is the way that that's done? Of course, it's much colder out. At Saturn, and so Titan's liquid lakes are uh, made of liquid methane, a gas at our temperatures, Mm -hmm. but a liquid there. Whereas Titan has nice rocks that are water because it's a solid. Uh, So it's weird. They have a, they have an environmental cycle. They have an erosion cycle. There is there is uh, there is uh, rain. You know methane rain and methane erosion, and there are these methane lakes on uh, on Titan. and we've known that for a while. There's some final data that has been reported on from Cassini when it was making its last pass of Titan before it crashed into uh, Saturn and said goodbye. And what they found is some more interesting things. Titan continues to surprise mm-hmm. us. Um, it, it they, they found small liquid methane lakes that are very deep, much deeper than anticipated, and high up on hills. Um, So sort of unexpected things. We we don't really understand all of what's going on in terms of the liquid environment at Titan. Um, But like more data, weird places to find liquid methane lakes, depth that was surprising. And basically Titan is a strange place that is so alien compared to our planet in some ways and yet incredibly similar to our planet in other ways. That, that make a it, it, like uh, ways that nothing else in our solar system is like our planet in that there aren't like lakes anywhere else <laughs> in the solar system. But Titan's got lakes. They may be very, very cold, but they have liquid lakes on their surface. And, you know, they uh, by by they, I mean the Titan Titans. Who live there?
1: Sure. Are we going with that?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yay, Titans. Um, anyway, so uh, Titan is cool and interesting, and uh, we should probably uh, maybe go back mm-hmm.
1: there. But part of it, yeah. yeah, we should definitely go back. Uh, part of this research, too, shows that these some of these lakes are in transition, so they appear and disappear with the changes of Titan's seasons. Titan is big enough in, right. to, to have these seasons. It has a what we would call a water cycle here on Earth, but there, of course, uh, like you said, it is liquid methane uh, complete with hydrocarbon rain. So it's raining methane and other hydrocarbons fr- <laughs> from clouds into these, these low spots that form lakes, and then they eventually uh, evap- evaporate. There's also uh, showing... Uh, research showing that there could be subsurface lakes as well underground. Uh, a very interesting place. and of course, one reason that Cassini was was ditched into Saturn's atmosphere was so it wouldn't strike Titan and these other moons that could harbor life or at least the uh, the the possibility of life. You don't want to have a spacecraft from Earth contaminate any of these locations and uh, and yeah, i I think that. Is a super exciting, and Titan is a is a a world that we need to know a lot more about. Yeah, for sure. Okay, we normally don't like April Fool stuff on the internet. I think you and I are alike in this way. You know, tech companies do it, and yes. it's very um, it's very exhausting to me to be on the internet on April Fools. But there is this uh, website and PDF and software uh, by Harvard, Harvard Center of Astrophysics. They announced it on April 1st, because what it does is a joke, but it's actually real. And this is why I wanted to talk about this. Uh, so this came from Liftoff listener Natasha sent us this and it is a Python tool. So it's a software tool you can run on your computer. You and I have both installed it where you can create backronyms from phrases of words. And I believe you have a couple of examples for us. I do, yes. I
0: installed this, and it's hilarious. So um, this is Liftoff Podcast, episode 97, or as we like to call it, ladies. Liftoff Podcast, episode 97. <laughs> I, I, if I had a feature request, it would be to have it um, prioritize. So first off, I would have a feature where it was like, you should use a letter from every yeah, single totally. word. And the second thing I would say is, try to use the first letter of every word and then pick other letters off in order to make w- weird words right which it doesn't quite do because um but but it is like i get the joke which is like this is great to make all these ridiculous acronyms um but uh oh so anyway ramsey's Who's was the other thing you should remember. You and Mike can remember Ramsey's. It means Relay makes really good
1: podcasts. <laughs> R-A-M-E-S-E-S. Story checks out. It does. So, yeah. So, there is a, there is a pull request on the uh, GitHub repo to more make it more in line with what you want, where, hey, check the first letter of the words. Use a letter from every word. But, boy, I love that someone put this together, man. I just... <laughs> <laughs> i love that instead of just it being you know a white paper sort of as a joke that someone wrote it and you can install it and if you have the means to run python on your computer you should definitely check this out so much fun it's fun this is how april fool's joke should go this should be tangible
0: yeah you know i i did an april fool's joke this year too but it's not that it's not this kind you, so what, it's, it's okay you can't
1: leave that hanging what did you do
0: i'm sorry Stephen. uh there's an episode of the incomparable. That people can listen to where we, um, we frequently on that podcast, we watch a, uh, an obscure bad movie, mm-hmm. like a legendarily bad movie. And then we talk about it and we just have fun riffing on how bad the movie is. And for that weekend, uh, we released an episode where we talked about a movie that, um, doesn't actually exist and we just riffed on it and we, it was completely improv'd and, uh, we didn't tell anybody that it didn't exist. And the people got really mad cause they're like, uh, trying to find the movie. And we said, don't, you can't, we didn't even...
1: it's not available that's great that's episode 453 i have it in the uh (laughs) yeah show notes for people
0: quite honestly the obscure movies we watch are so obscure and they're so bad and nobody should watch them anyway (laughs) as well and that's where it came from is like we could make up one of these and nobody would know because the ones we do sound made up (laughs) so that's what we did that's that's i'm sorry please i apologize for my april fooling yeah
1: well you have a year to think about what you've done thank you This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by ExpressVPN. We can all probably hold our hands up and admit the cybercrime is something that happens to other people because no one would want my data. But the bad news is stealing data from regular people using things like unprotected public Wi-Fi is actually a pretty simple way for bad people to do bad things. If you leave your internet connection unencrypted, Things like passwords and credit card numbers can become vulnerable. But there's something you can do to protect yourself from this sort of crime. You can start using ExpressVPN. It works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing. It encrypts your data and hides your public IP address with easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background on your device. You can turn on ExpressVPN protection with just a click. They have apps that run on the Mac and the PC and iOS, and it makes it really easy to safely surf public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having data taken. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. A couple of weekends ago, I was traveling for work, staying in a hotel for the weekend, and the hotel, actually, to give them credit, the Wi-Fi was pretty fast. I could do what I needed to do, but you better believe that I was running ExpressVPN. So the other people on the network couldn't see what I was up to, that my data was safe. For less than $7 a month, you can get that same ExpressVPN protection that I use when I travel. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep the bad guys away from your data, you need ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com liftoff to learn more. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash liftoff. That's E X P R E S slash liftoff for three months free with a one-year package. My thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of Liftoff and all of RelayFM. All right. So uh,
0: we had a lot that happened in the last couple of weeks, and we forgot actually to mention that this was going to happen. In our previous episode, but now I can tell the whole story about Bereshit, the uh, Israeli nonprofit space IL sent this little uh, lunar lander to the moon, it actually hitched a ride on uh, a SpaceX rocket in February, there was an Indonesian communication satellite, and there was also Bereshit, this little... Uh, lunar lander that was intended to be part of the Lunar X Prize, which, as we've talked about on the show before, nobody won. Nobody got that because uh, the deadline and the extended deadline passed. But IL continued to go, and they really wanted to land this thing and be the fourth country and the first um, company, private company, to land on the moon. And that landing attempt was last week, after uh, some very clever dynamics. So, you know, f- since February, it's been, they've been using minimal propulsion and they've been using the gravity of Earth and Moon with occasional uh, very specific moments where they use thrust to move it from Earth orbit to moon orbit and then tightening that orbit and finally getting to the point where they could attempt a landing, which they did last week. And it was going really well. Lots of complicated orbital orbital maneuvers that all worked well. And they they were broadcasting it live and they got past the point of no return and they're descending toward the surface. It's very exciting. And then there's this moment, because I watched the live stream, then there's this moment where all the telemetry stops. And apparently what happened is that they had a technical problem. It's unclear what it was. The main engine cut out. They lost control. And so they had to reboot the system, basically, and sent the command to do that and that, and told it to restart the engine, which happened. And the telemetry came back momentarily. But with the telemetry, there was enough of a gap that when the telemetry came back, it showed that it was very close to the lunar surface. And still moving at a fairly high velocity because its uh, main engine had cut out. And then and and when it came back, the people in the crowd started cheering because, like, yay, it came back. We're restarting the engine, they said. And the telemetry came back. And they went, yay. And you could see one of the guys. And I, I saw the telemetry. And I was like, uh-oh. And one of the guys was like, no, no, no don't clap yeah. it's
1: too, fa- it's in <laughs> and, too fast too low
0: yeah and it was that moment where, and, and then the telemetry went off again you're like well it, it just crashed and then there was about a five minute period where everybody was like we don't really know what's going on and then it's like okay that didn't work we didn't we didn't make it and uh, I, they pivoted pretty quickly to uh, it's amazing that we got this close we we, we made it all this way they, it radioed some, uh, some pictures back including one that's fairly low to the surface that's very impressive um, but they didn't they did the hard landing not the soft landing and so they the, Israel is the seventh country now to orbit the moon but failed at being the fourth to do a soft landing on the planet so or on the moon so that will take uh, another 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 go but they just yeah it didn't it's sad they got so close and then and then it fell apart and it sounds like this is a uh, software to blame
1: yeah I think that's kind of what the, the the consensus is here the control software I guess for that that main motor some sort of bug. There's been a few articles since then that kind of point to that, but you know, we may not ever know exactly what happened. Or it may be that, oh yeah, it was a it was a software patch. We can fix it for next time and it'll be good to go. But I don't know. Um there's kind of a weird side story here I wanted to bring up. So the um there was a a microscopic lunar library. Did you see this? Um, yes, I did see that. Yeah, so uh, that was a um, a payload on the craft, and it's believed that that could have survived. Uh, NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is going to be looking both for that uh, and a laser re- uh, retroreflector that was also on board. Uh, and this was going to be part of a larger program to map the moon and basically create like a system of coordinates with these laser reflectors. This was going to be one of the first of many. And it may be that that survived as well. These were very small, very lightweight objects that you could imagine could be thrown off from an impact and maybe uh, come back down further away. So in the coming weeks, we may get a little bit more information about the crash area, may even get images of it uh, if the uh, reconnaissance orbiter can spot it from its orbit.
0: We'll see. Um, you know, there's also Beresheet 2. hmm Question mark? Like, uh the X Prize first off there are people from X Prize who were there at the landing attempt and they uh they were there to give them a million dollars that was like a little bonus prize because even though the the big prize had lapsed, they were gonna donate a million dollars to SpaceIL because of how much they had done, and actually after the crash they said, "We're you're still going to get the million dollars, uh, because of all of the Lunar X Prize contestants, they're the ones that got the furthest," and uh, and it was a pretty, I mean, again, a small Israeli nonprofit almost landed something on the moon. That's pretty incredible. It is is very hard to do. Um, And uh, they were originally, this was a one-shot deal, but in the process of doing it and how far they got and how I think exciting it was, and I think also maybe how um, excited uh, Israel was about them doing this, Netanyahu, the prime minister, was at the landing. It was literally, I think, the day or two after their their big election that he won. Um, And the first thing he said, Uh, after the crash was announced was in English, he said, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And um, that struck me as being like I, I think maybe behind the scenes, they're like, look, if this doesn't work, let's do it again. This is great. We should do this. We'll we'll get you some more money. And Morris Kahn, who is the guy who uh, b- largely financed the nonprofit and the first lander, he said, you know, we're going to make another one. They haven't done a lot of details yet, but it sounds to me like um, Space IL uh, really, um, it was more successful than anybody anticipated and that they all looked at each other and said why are we not trying this again like what there, there's so much that we've learned here and there's so much success we already had even though we didn't land let's let's do some more here and i noticed there were after the crash there were a bunch of uh, sort of nasa and nasa related tweets about it and it sounds like there's even given how um, nasa is interested in moon stuff these days too like there were conversations about like, are there ways to share knowledge um, and even technology um, as part of the kind of greater commercial um, lunar efforts that are going mm-hmm. on? That space IL has learned. So I, I kind of love that 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 maybe the outcome of this uh, this this nonprofit building this thing for the Lunar X Prize is going to be that they're going to be connected up with kind of the larger move that's going on now to get more more focus on the moon. Um, and then besides the companies, I would imagine that the people involved, the engineers involved in this, this is a great time for them because, you know, engineers of spacecraft that are going to the moon, I would think are in demand right now because there's a lot of that going on. So it will be fun to follow the story and see if IL has a plan for what they're going to do with Beresheet 2. But it's a... Uh, it's too bad it didn't land. That would have been the great underdog story. But still, I think this is a pretty great underdog story, even though it didn't make it to the surface.
1: Yeah, I hope to have an episode of the future where we talk about them having a successful run at it.
0: That would be really nice. Mm-hmm. That would be really nice. I like the idea of, of little nonprofits sending things to the moon. That's cool.
1: It's great. And like you said, I think the future is bright for that team once they get this sorted out. You know what's not bright, Steven? Black holes. Ooh, what a transition.
0: Actually, black holes are bright around the outside, and then in the center, they're not. Mm, We
1: got that event horizon deal to worry about.
0: You know how we know? We We took a picture of a black hole. Well, we didn't, but people did. Humans! (laughs) By we, I mean the Titans on Titan. (laughs) No, but humans. Humans did it. We, We promoted this like uh, two weeks ago as probably happening, but nobody knew exactly because they were keeping it all quiet. But it's official now. It, it would be hard to have missed it. Uh, there were pictures of the black hole image. The black hole image was on every newspaper front page and every website everywhere. There's a picture of the scientists who were involved in the imaging at an airport, uh, waiting for their flight. And they had like, uh, they were all reading the newspaper and it was this posed image where they're all basically holding up the, the image that they did. It was uh, really hilarious. So, so we got the first black hole image and it's a, I think an amazing story of human, the progress of human science, uh, and, and achievement. Um, because black holes are, are, we now think fairly common and at the center of this, what was imaged was at the center of a galaxy called M87. Um, But we think that black holes, large supermassive black holes are at the center of probably every galaxy and might even be important in how galaxies form in the, in the very beginning. Um, They are a consequence of Einstein's general relativity. Um, And I, I think this is great that it kind of emerges from the math of, Einstein's relativity, that he didn't really intend it. Um, but a guy named Carl Schwarzschild uh, did the math and said, this leads to a concept where there's a uh, an infinite mass, you know, infinitesimal point that is so strong that uh, basically light couldn't escape from it. And Einstein thought, yeah, well, that's the math, but such an object would never exist in reality. Einstein was a very... I just read a biography of Einstein, and he's a very intuitive guy he he um he was skeptical of things that didn't sort of like follow his intuition about how things should be and in later life that led him to sort of like uh, oppose some of the things that came out of his own uh concepts because he didn't think they made sense even though they have been largely proven right so in in um in 1931 uh, a scientist named Chandrasekhar took it even further with uh using the special relativity to calculate out uh, what would happen at the end stage of a a solar evolution with a white dwarf and that figured out that above a certain mass, the weird material that makes up a white dwarf could not stand up to the mass and it would collapse to a point. And that, uh, that mass is now called the Chandrasekhar Limit. And this is the thing where, like, if you have uh, a star that's big enough, a supernova remnant remnant that is, uh, or, or a large large star remnant that's big enough, it just, uh, it doesn't become a white dwarf. It becomes a black hole instead. So the math is there. Uh, the evidence keeps increasing over the course of the 20th century that they are real. We see X-ray sources and pulsars and things that are like, you know, this could really be a, be- a black hole. Um, and over time, everybody kind of assumes these are not fanciful objects. They really do exist. Um, but none of that is the same as taking a picture of one. And that's what makes this this so exciting, is that this is direct imaging using a whole network of radio telescopes and something called interferometry interferometry, which is the idea that you have a lot of telescopes and you work on gathering the light or the radio waves from all of them. And then you put all that data together. And basically, if you've got telescopes all over the world looking in the same direction and you put the data together, you can get data that behaves like a single telescope that's the size of the earth basically if you've got the whole size of the earth co- earth covered and that's what they did to do this but that means like the it can't have bad weather at any of the points that are observing which is very hard since one of the points is the south pole by the way and the amount of data collected is enormous i think uh for this one image it was 5 terabytes but they actually were taking multiple images some of which probably we will hear about later so it was about 15 terabytes of total data they had on um, half a ton of hard drives they had to fly them uh to the two locations one in the US and one in Germany where they put it all together but the net result is you get this telescope the size of the earth and after a lot of computing um they were able to get an image out mm-hmm. which is amazing
1: yeah you had this post over on six colors which i'll link to in the notes about the amount of data that was needed and at at that size to move it around the planet because you have this data scattered across the world at all these different sites like you can't do that across the internet and so the fastest way to do it was to put hard drives on planes and move them
0: yeah, yeah, they and, and it's actually funny, if you think about bandwidth in terms of da- a data rate, that for large data sets, this is just a computer science thing, for large data sets, an airplane is a pretty fast transfer speed. There's no latency. You're, you're sending it in one direction. But if you can load up half a ton of hard drives into a, a plane and fly it somewhere, that uh, works out. I, I did the math to just on the back of a napkin, basically, and it's a pretty impressive data rate. And in the press conference, the, the, the reason I wrote that piece is that the guy in the press conference conference said, there's no, you know, internet connection that would have let us transfer this data in a reasonable way. We just flew the hard drives. And from the South Pole, it's especially the case where I think they did this imaging in April. um, And that's right going into the teeth of South Pole winter. And they had to wait for it to be good weather back in the South Pole spring or summer in order to get the hard drives out. So those hard drives sat at the South Pole for like, six or nine months until they were able to come out but when you think about how bad the internet connection is at the south pole that's still probably a faster data transfer mm-hmm. rate than trying to send, you know, a, a couple of terabytes of uh, or a couple of petabytes of data. It's not even terabytes, sorry. It's pe- not 15 terabytes, it's 15 petabytes. Uh it's a lot of data. A lot. It's more data than it's 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 15,000 terabytes. It's uh insane amounts of data. So so yeah, they just flew them and uh, to Germany and to Massachusetts and then they uh, they processed it all. And the image we get is this uh, bright ring with a black center. Uh, It's a a galaxy 55 million light years away. It's M87. Um, The the black hole is estimated to be 6.5 billion times the mass of our sun, 6.5 billion solar masses. This is a supermassive center of a galaxy black hole. It's not the remnant of a star that died. This is an enormous amount of material... Uh, at, collected at the center of the galaxy. The picture that you see with the black center and the ring around it, the, the image area of that, um, the, the black center and the ring, is way larger than our entire solar system. Um, so it's, a, it's an enormous structure. And of course, that black center isn't the black hole, it's what they call a shadow or a silhouette. That is, uh, the, that's the part where the the light just can't pass through because any light in that area is uh, pulled back into the black hole. And so you get the black section. And then outside of that, you've got the distortion of the light that can make it to us from the proximity of the, of the black hole. And there was an amazing thing that I saw on Twitter where somebody said that they had calculated out in the late 70s, somebody had calculated out on punch cards, basically, a simulation of what a black hole would look like. And it's pretty darn close to what this image is. It's kind of amazing that this it meets the models. We've had a lot of time to do the math here. The challenge has been, how do you get this image? And uh, and they got it. And it looks... The the good thing... I mean, it's sort of disappointing in the sense that it's not super weird. And everybody goes, whoa, our conception of physics is completely wrong. Instead, we look at it and we go, oh, yeah, we got it. That That's what it's supposed to look mm-hmm.
1: like. That's an amazing element of the story. It's something that started out as a hypothetical situation then proved by math and now shown in an image, like it's evolution from being unsure to having an image of it as the wallpaper on your iPad. Like that, that's amazing. It really is. And really in just a handful of decades, it's mind blowing.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a story of a hundred years going from the ramifications of Einstein's relativity And the math around it to the point now where not only is it an accepted fact, this thing that nobody even could conceive of before, but that uh, we now have imagery about it. And the way that it was imaged is amazing. The, The technology that has to be used, the computer power that has to be used, the algorithms that have to be generated, because the algorithms have to look at that data and they have to make guesses about like what the actual image is. It's not as simple as sort of like loading all the data from the interferometry and then going ding, here's a picture. It's not like that. They have to process that data and make some guesses about what the overall image is because they're not collecting imagery from everywhere. They're collecting imagery from points on that. And then they have to put it together. It's uh, they have to train it using machine learning to find algorithms that will find that will generate images that are our possibilities. Um, uh, it's very, very complicated. It takes a lot of computer science skill.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like we need to talk about what has happened in the day since. I don't want to do this to give people who are jerks any screen or any airtime that they don't deserve. But um, Katie Bowman is a she she was an MIT graduate student. Uh, She's 29. She worked in developing the algorithm that was used to to merge all this data and create the image that we saw. Um, She posted this picture on Facebook uh, of her at her laptop as this image was being constructed. The internet is a terrible place full of terrible small people who were really unbelievably ugly about this. Uh, People doing just – yeah, Ugh. yeah, it was like
0: the internet couldn't... People on the internet couldn't stand for the fact that a woman was being given credit for something. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that it was uh, a big team, and Katie Bauman would be the first to say that it's a huge team. She was one of the people who worked on it. I think she was working on an algorithm that was one of the four that they were using to process it, and they basically did a bake-off where the four teams, I think it was, went and separately processed the data and came back with... Uh, with solutions for it, which I think is interesting, and it was dozens of people working on this stuff. Uh, but yes, the internet did things like go through the code and Ugh. and say, "Haha, look, most of this code was checked into the repository by this guy, and that guy was like, yeah." no (laughs) i am one part i did not do this i'm one part of a large team and so is she and uh, please do not use me as proof that i'm the i'm the one who invented this because that's not true so people are jerks Mm -hmm. and this and uh while i appreciate the fact that trying to point to one person and say, this is the person who did this when it's actually dozens of people. I think that's not great, but at the same time, I think the point was that these people uh, couldn't bear to see a woman in science be applauded. And that was what was motivating them. But the truth is, if you talk to the people on the team, yes, there were lots of men and women who worked together to build the algorithms that generated this black hole image and uh and Katie Bowman was one of them, mm-hmm. and she did a lot of work, and she was on one of the teams that generated I think the image that they actually went with in terms of um the one that they felt was the closest to what they were uh, trying to you know trying to match what was in reality
1: mm-hmm. yeah, she and the team she worked with deserve. Tons of credit here, all the credit here. Yeah, and
0: yeah. So there's just more. Let's let's push up more names. And they and they did. The people involved did a great job during this whole thing of just saying, you know, it's a big team. Mm-hmm. You know, but but what happened when somebody found a social media post of her with her laptop showing that screen and being amazed that this happened, which is a truly amazing moment, right? And then said, "Oh, here is the single inventor of this whole thing," and that was a mistake from the beginning because um we do have as a society uh as a culture we have this tendency to want to seek the you know single hero mm-hmm. for anything and it's yeah it's less exciting to have it be um 40 people i will say i thought it was very effective as a way of saying to um women and girls who are interested in science um you know, don't believe it when you think that it's just men out there doing science. Here is a woman who worked on this project and and this is her at the moment of discovery of, of finding this imagery. Like, that is a really inspirational thing. And it is a shame that the Internet um, wants to, well, acu- well, actually something as inspirational as that. Yeah. But this is, these these are, none of these things are done by one person. None of the stuff we talk about, none of it. Is not the result of teams of dozens or hundreds or thousands of people. <sighs> what a bunch of f- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's probably a black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy too, and I think they were trying to image it. and It would not surprise me if there will be another press conference in the next little while where they have another image to show us, and it's the black hole at the center of our own galaxy. But that's not what they were able to show in this one, and uh, M87 gets the glory as the first black hole on film it's not actually film but you know what i mean buat, steven right update you know I mean. update breaking news what is happening over there
1: oh that's the oh, space alert didn't you know I thought it'd be grander somehow i mean you did a really good job mm-hmm. i don't mean to sorry <jego>
0: <courtesy of> <panels>. how about that is that better This sounds like something's happened so we uh Proving that that uh, it makes no point. There's no point in recording the show in advance because we recorded most of the show in advance due to travel and things like that. And guess what? There
1: was a little situation in Florida. There was news.
0: Yeah. So this is our little bonus extra uh, at the end of the episode uh, version of uh, liftoff where we talk about what happened on Saturday in Florida, where the. Uh, <laughs> Well, not all the information is out there, but SpaceX was testing the engines that they are uh, meant to use as part of the escape system. So, in case there is an in flight, we talked about this. Uh, a few months ago in flight abort test that they want to run this summer, and there there are these engines on the the crew dragon capsule and the idea there is that during a launch all the way until they are confirmed in orbit, they want the ability for the capsule to basically pop off the top of the rocket and use its own thrust to shoot itself to safety that's the idea here, and so they 've got engines on the capsule that ha- that they've been testing, and they were doing some tests. And I didn't even know that this was happening. There was no real discussion of it. They were doing some tests on the pad in, uh, in Florida on Saturday, and they got to the last test of the day. And according to a leaked video and other reports, uh, essentially everything blew up. Or Sorry, it was a, uh, what is it, a rapid unplanned disassembly? RUD? I don't know. It's
1: really interesting. So yeah. the to, to back up a second, the these escape motors, it's different than in the olden days of something like Apollo, where you had that escape tower affixed to the top of the capsule that would pull the capsule away. That was only good up to a certain point in flight, and then that had to be... Discarded these engines around the Crew Dragon capsule can be used uh, much later into flight. So it is from a safety perspective, gives them more flexibility. If something goes wrong, right, you can pull that capsule away, which we saw is so important when we when we just saw the Soyuz launch a couple of months ago, right? When that they had that collision with the the outer booster, and without being able to pull away, you can be in a really bad situation. And so that's what they were testing: is that that mechanism. Yeah, and that, that was a choice, by the way. I
0: think of NASA. NASA was like, we want escape ability mm-hmm. all the way to orbit, so that
1: that's a fundamental part of what the the commercial crew uh, set of rules mm-hmm. is. And so it, it looks like uh, that it had some sort of catastrophic failure. There's photos from uh, the beach of orange smoke going up. Uh, an article in the LA Times and Ars Technica, they're, they're both in the show notes, talk about the type of fuel used in these motors. These are solid. Uh, solid fuels it's unlike the srbs in the shuttle days where once you light it you can't stop it these motors have valves in them that keep the combustibles apart from each other and then upon contact they they light
0: yeah it's hypergolic which is really cool the idea is they can be stored at at essentially room temperature they don't need to be frozen like uh Mm -hmm. like oxygen fuel liquid oxygen um and it's these two um basically the valves you, you can control how much of the stuff gets released but when they come into contact they explode essentially and it's a it's very uh it's very clever right because it is stable it's shelf stable basically until you use it um but something obviously went horribly wrong um on mm-hmm. on saturday
1: so uh, you know we will see this we are talking on tuesday spacex hasn't said much past yeah something happened <laughs>
0: <laughs> we had an anomaly. Actually, there's that that video that is that is leaked, and Eric Berger at Ars Technica has been all over this. And that video has been floating around, um, and he says he can't confirm its authenticity, but it is. Exactly what was described to him by somebody in a position of knowledge about what happened, and so he believes that it's. I mean, he he's just calling it an unauthorized leaked video, but he believes its authenticity. Um, NASA and SpaceX are just saying we acknowledged an anomaly, but you know, in in reality, like um, Eric Berger's piece on this that we can link to, like it, it's really good because he says SpaceX actually has a, a history of. Um, reacting well to accidents and fixing problems quickly. And this was an, an on-pad test. It was uh, heavily instrumented, he said. Like, they've got lots of data about this. So they will probably be able to pinpoint, pinpoint what went wrong. Um, the question is, uh, if it's a fundamental problem or if it's a Mm -hmm. minor problem. I mean, a minor problem can cause your spacecraft to blow up, but it's more fixable, I guess, is the issue there. So the question is, how fixable is this as a problem? Because if they have to go back to the drawing board on something, it's going to be a longer process. But Eric Berger at Ars Technica seems to be fairly positive that like the SpaceX culture is actually pretty good at this. And then he also mentions how this is the time, I think what he said was, this is the time if you're SpaceX where you should hug NASA because they're your partner and they are actually pretty good at accident investigations and you know they need to help you and they also need to be confident in what you're doing cuz it really is a partnership um especially uh when it comes to commercial crew because th- th- it's going to be NASA's astronauts who are on this thing but um you know it- it's very clear though and this is sad cuz we did our new year's podcast it's very clear now that um uh, 2019 is not the year for commercial crew after all that it's that there's just almost no way that this is not going to delay
1: things into 2020. Yeah, it sure seems like that is that's going to be the case. Uh, we don't know yet, NASA. I mean again, it's early days of this investigation, but I can't imagine that commercial crew happens this year with this capsule. Yeah. And, and
0: of course, Boeing's capsule has already been pushed further and further back and was unlikely to hit 2020 anyway. So um, I, I wanted to mention the other thing that I think is really sad about this is that Crew Dragon that flew to the International Space Station, which was a, a pretty historic event unto itself. And we talked about that here um very sad to say that that was what that was the equipment they were using to do this test which means that historic spacecraft basically is obliterated um and and it also means that spacex will now have to figure out what they're going to use when they resume testing and they're down uh they're down a piece of equipment and they could pull the one that they were planning on using for the for the the next uh mission and use that but then, you know, it, it's just it's one of those things when when you have a, a loss of a spacecraft, there aren't that many of them like there. They're, I'm sure that SpaceX is building many crew dragons, but, uh you know, a handful at least. But they're probably not very far along. I think they've only got one that's pretty far along. And then there's probably another one behind that. So that's an added complication as well, regardless of the changes that they've got to make is that they they're down their crew dragon that they were using. Um, the, and, and just flew to space. Yeah, so we're going
1: to keep an eye on this story, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it as things as things happen. But for now, while it's a bummer for the commercial crew schedule, this, and Eric makes a good point of this, this is why testing happens, right? No one was hurt. Yes. Uh, they're going to learn from this and be able to move forward. And if that's what happens here, then that's the system working the way it's supposed to.
0: Yeah, in fact, uh, he mentions uh, various failures, including the Apollo 1 accident, which, of course, had Mm -hmm. casualties. But that was, uh, casualties aside, that actually was something that revealed all sorts of issues with the Apollo capsule. And they built, um, you know, less than two years later, they were sending people up in the sec- the block 2 Apollo capsule right so um this is why they test you're right and and you would like it all to go perfectly but it doesn't always go perfectly and and um in that way i think it's not surprising it is it is kind of funny that this is the this is the thing that is, is the impediment, but it's an important, it's a safety feature, right? Like they need to have the safety feature work and work properly because NASA does not want, uh, and, and as you said earlier, that Soyuz abort is the perfect example, which is, you know, modern spaceflight standards. We want a safety system that will get our astronauts. The whole point of putting the capsule on top of a rocket, unlike with the space shuttle, is it gives you the ability to do these aborts from during the launch and uh and it's right for them to insist on that, and you know they'll they'll keep working on it, but this is why they test and and it is amazing, given that footage that video footage like they didn't nobody was harmed right like they they follow their safety procedures and and uh when this anomaly happened um you know it's a it's a loss, but also presumably they'll learn a lot and uh and spacex's history is that they'll come back strong from it because they're they're pretty good at fixing problems and they've got a lot of data to work with so we can only hope well i think i think that does it for real this time all right this ends this ends your liftoff last minute update wow, busy Fortnite, jason busy busy busy, busy <laughs> so busy i imagine that they'll uh there'll be more for next time but this one was action-packed mm-hmm.
1: If you want to find uh, links to the stuff we spoke about on this week uh, week's episode, you can head over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 97. While you're there, you can get in touch. There's an email link over there in the sidebar for feedback and follow up. There's a link to our Tumblr page where we uh, post stories in between episodes. Uh, sometimes those end up on the show, like... Uh, titans methane lakes but sometimes it's just stuff we don't have time to fit in uh, so be sure to check that out uh, you can get in touch on twitter as well jason is there as j snell and you can find me there as ismh and until our next fortnight jason say goodbye remember the titans <laughs> adios